Hey, welcome to Current Yield, Grant's interest rate observer of the air. I am Jim Grant, and with me, as always, is uh, world traveler and sound engineer Eric Whitehead. But I'm not alone with Eric. To my right is our special guest today. It was Amity Schlaes. And Amity is a formidable lady. I mean, she is the author, most relevantly for this podcast, of Great Society, A New History, just out, who's touted quite accurately and discerningly by John Taylor in uh, a recent interview of the Wall Street Journal. Amity is the author of, besides The Great Society, of the fine biography of our 30th president, the title of which is Coolidge. And uh, also, uh, I think, uh, most, perhaps you know this one the best, but uh, uh, certainly it is a wonderful book. In fact, it's a new history of the Great Depression, and its title is Forgotten Man. Amity is uh, a familiar byline to the readers at one point the Financial Times, Bloomberg, and a former member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board. She teaches it at King's College in Manhattan, is the chair of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation and the chair of the Manhattan Institute's Hayek Book Prize, and the mother of four, and uh, married to Seth Lipsky, and furthermore, a neighbor of ours in Brooklyn. So, Amity, welcome. Thank you, Jim. Well, this is a, uh, a treat. And um, I think I'm not giving too much away, Amity, would I say that the uh, a unifying thread of this wonderful history of the Great Society is uh, a man named uh, Ben Cartwright, and uh, you know the uh, the patriarch of the family that settled in the Bonanza. Yes. And had it, so uh, and there's Haas, and then there's uh, I've, I've forgotten, but uh, uh, this you you know the, you've, uh, this television series, which is was fabulous. I think it started in 1960, and we begin we readers begin with the introduction to uh, Bonanza, and the book closes with Bonanza. So tell us how this is relevant to the Great Society, the gold standard and its absence, and Walter Ruther and, and Lyndon Baines Johnson and so forth. Well, in the early 60s, late 50s, we were wondering what comes next. And there was an assumption that the economy was our bonanza, that it would always come, the cornucopia would always flow open, and that what we had to do was figure out how to distribute the wealth, what was from the bonanza. So it was a bit of a shift. It was not how do you earn it or will the money ever come as in the Great Depression? It was given, colon, wealth. What do you do it? How do you handle it? Who deserves it? Basically, how much do you redistribute it? Um, And what's nice about the show is unlike some Westerns, it's not a lone man with a gun coming into town, seeing the pretty girl killing the bad guy and going off from the town. Although there's certainly nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that, uh, with her, you know, side saddle behind him or on the same horse. So in Bonanza, it was really about building a community that had wealth or was beginning to have wealth. The Cartwrights had this enormous wealth of their ranch, Ponderosa, but they were also kind of civilizing the towns near mm. them and learning all about from father. About how to how invest, how, right? How to, how to invest. How, is $15,000 too much to pay for a bull, for example? For example, and it was a kind of a wonderful mirror of American sensibility at that time. And what's interesting about the show is all presidents knew about it, of course, and that it appeared at an important time for presidents, which is Sunday night when they usually make their important at nine o'clock. Nine o'clock. Um, Eastern. At, we, should, we should not be imperial. Eastern time. East. Right. So we should not be. But it. That meant that I hope I'm not giving too much away. But if a president wanted to make a speech 
on Sunday night primetime. He had enormous bonanza himself and attention from viewers, but he also offended primetime. Preempt. Preempting. Uh, and uh, this was a decision confronted by many presidents. Yeah. Well, there's one in particular, one president in particular, his name was Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon and his uh, encounter with monetary affairs is of particular interest to our audience. And Emily, you do, your book does a great job of setting up the drama uh, that led to a famous preemption of Bonanza in 1971. August 15th was the date. And it had to do with uh, something that now sounds uh, very, very dusty and recondite, the gold window. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened on that evening of August 15th, 1971. In the United States throughout the 60s, foreign governments were withdrawing gold, but they were permitted to, the government had gold, and only they were permitted to collect gold in exchange for dollars. That at a, was at a fixed price. At a fixed price of $35. Is that correct? I'm thinking, yeah, yes, $35. that's right. So I'm, I'm doubting myself all of a sudden, Jim. So this fixed price around which the constellation or the world was built, and there were a number of reasons we kept along doing this, assuring the fixed price. One was for foreign governments. So the exchange rate, uh, at least that exchange rate would always be the same. Then they had a bunch of sort of fixed rates that they occasionally adjusted all around. And part of that system, for example, was that the German mark was uh, relatively good price. Uh, so Germany's export engine, the auto business, did well. The yen, I think you could say, looking back, might have been undervalued at certain points. Anyway, it was all part of keeping the world together after World War II. This is a, they call it the Bretton Woods system, didn't they? The Bretton Woods gold exchange system. And if you're going to change that, well, you can't surprise people. You have to warn them and have diplomatic meetings for two years before. That's what Paul Volcker, who recently passed away, our great central banker, and at the time a junior official would have said, well, I'm going to go over to Japan and let them know we're going to change this slowly and Japan will adjust uh, because they've actually been great friends buying dollars when necessary to to keep us up of late and so on. But the the bold fact was, the, 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 the clear fact was other countries um, thought they better get the gold now. And so they kept withdrawing and the gold number went down and down and down, we, to, right. uh, approaching a, an important line, which was 10 billion. Yeah. I mean, th this comes through very clearly in the book. In those days, uh, as you said, the uh, world was on a system of fixed exchange rates. Bretton Woods had gotten off to a kind of a rocky start in the 40s and, and 50s. But uh, by the late 50s, it kind of hit its stride. And uh for a time there, it looked as if its fixedness would be a permanent thing. But then uh, the United States uh, began to wage a war in uh, Southeast Asia, and uh, there were commitments to defend Europe as well. And the dollars flowed out of the country into the bank accounts of uh, foreigners, into the coffers of foreign governments, and they, beginning to doubt the Americans' ability to exchange dollars for bullion began to say, you know, thank you very much. We have all these dollars. Would you mind terribly uh, taking this hundred million and sending us the equivalent in gold at $35 an ounce? And the Americans were uh, either reluctant or, but they did because that was the deal, right? But uh, at length, there were so many dollars held overseas and relatively such a worrisomely small amount of gold left that uh, 
Well, what happened? Yes, and so this gold story, you know, there is a gold rush or two in Bonanza, right? Right. It, this has to do with Americans' very sense that we do have wealth. Uh, we had gold. We have gold in forts. We have gold in Manhattan, in the lower part. You know, we, we are rich, right? It's just as simple as that. And all these foreign countries actually saw a few things, and they weren't. They didn't just merely see the Triffin dilemma, the, the technical explanation for this. Um, what they saw was that maybe the U.S. was indeed overspending both on the war. This was the high point in the Vietnam War when, when this problem became dire, but also on domestic policy, the Great Society, and uh, believe me, Charles de Gaulle recognized that. It was the social democracy we developed in our domestic programming in the 60s um, that sort of took it over the line because the war might one day end. De Gaulle knew the U.S. could withdraw from Vietnam because France had. But what about this this great sudden shift in the United States, which the Great Society was, from more capitalist to less capitalist. You know, and, and that was the factor. Right. And and what happened in, oh, shall I say what happened in 71? Let's come around to that in one moment. Okay. Because uh, you mentioned, uh, as I had not mentioned, the uh, parallel growth in domestic spending. We call it the Great Society. You're, that's where your title comes from. And uh, the book opens up with a reminiscence of uh, uh, Michael Harrington, right, going to Washington to talk about social with one of the Kennedy clan, Sergeant Shriver. And uh, they're all kind of uh, thinking, uh, kind of uh, somewhat unauthorized thoughts at the time about uh, just plain old socialism. And uh, these ideas have consequences in the Johnson administration. And as you note so well, a little bit incongruously, indeed somewhat shockingly, in the Nixon administration. Did it strike you, Amity, as surprising as you researched this book, how much the, uh, Richard Nixon resembled Lyndon Bain Johnson and his outlook on life and on politics and on individual liberty? Yes, it does. Uh, it did, and it does, especially in the 1971 episode we're going to discuss. So uh, that's one of the great revisions of the Great Society is Nixon is like Johnson, uh, which is to say a man ambitious for a second term and a man willing to play off people against one another the book concentrates not so much on the presidents, but on their yes. their uh, beleaguered underlings. And in particular, Sergeant Shriver, um, to get to the socialism just briefly, isn't it wonderful that we can have this conversation and talk about socialism? Five years ago or 18 years ago, we would have been called red baiters. But nowadays, young people talk about socialism. Candidates talk about socialism. Uh, they talked about socialism then. So it's okay for markets people to talk about socialism too, by which they meant, well, Michael Harrington was a real socialist. He came out of the Catholic progressive tradition. He believed that uh, what one did in the church ought to be translated writ large in a government effort. He was a thoughtful man. He was the J.D. Vance of the period because he wrote the equivalent of Hillbilly Elegy, but more serious, called The Other America about the poor people of Appalachia and how we would cure that. Oops. And he had the honor, thanks in part to the labor unions, of getting to Washington with his best-selling book, his Hillbilly Elegy, to say, well, let's why don't we do something big? Let's try socialism. Sergeant Shriver, who also, interestingly, you know, saw his work in government as the sort of expansion of his work in the Catholic Church, said, well, we have a billion dollars to spend. And Harrington said, well, that's nickels and dimes. And Shriver rightly says, well, young man, I don't know about you, but I never had a billion to spend before. It sounds like a decent amount to me. If we say uh, it fast. A billion to eradicate poverty. And, mm. and Johnson did say he would eradicate poverty. He didn't say he'd provide a palliative, that he'd give the economy. 
economy of French transfusion. President Johnson and those around him said, we will zero out poverty. Yeah. And that's the drama and ambition of the Great Society. They didn't. Didn't do things by halves. Well, well and they didn't succeed. Right. There's a beauty. I want to give uh, mention John Cogan, who wrote an excellent book of Hoover called The High Cost of Good Intentions, which are the data points in detail, not so much the stories as here, the data points. And he does a, a brilliant job showing how poverty was coming down in the 50s rather rapidly. So that's a success you kind of want to get in front of and politically claim as your own. Look, poverty's down. I did something. So from Johnson's point of view, who became president in 63, look, poverty's coming down. I can claim victory and it will get to zero just by introducing a program that will be appear to accelerate the reduction in poverty. It didn't. Actually, poverty didn't go down faster and began to go down much more slowly and settled at about 10% where we are today, if you do the same arithmetic. Well, there was a, a problem with these good intentions and with these programs, both foreign and domestic, and that was inflation. Now, nowadays, of course, the central bankers positively pray for inflation. I still can't get used to it. I'm, you know, I'm, as uh, somebody who was 36 years old, I, I, I read about this stuff, but I can't. I, you know, the central bankers just yearn for inflation. And uh, then they uh, had rather a lot of it, uh, not much to start, of course. Uh, in the early 60s, it was a kind of a 1% number. Uh, even lower than today. And by 65 or 66, it was kind of creepy up in the two and a half, three, three and a half, and at length four, and I got four. And, um, and wouldn't you know it, well, I know it because I've read your fine book, but uh, one of the major figures in your story, Amity, is, is uh, Arthur Burns, who is uh, a central banker and uh, a bureaucratic climber and uh, one of the great uh, charlatans. <laughs> of, but tell us about Arthur Burns's role. In, he, was, he was Nixon's uh, Fed chairman. What did he do? Right. Well, some of us like opera or Greek tragedy. Arthur Burns is a character from an opera or a Greek tragedy. I think one of his colleagues um, actually said he belonged in Sophocles. You know, as as the person who sees the tragedy coming and then himself participates in in triggering it. That's Arthur Burns. So Arthur Burns is interesting because he was so deeply respected in the guild. It was said he could predict uh, the business cycle by the strength of the smoke in the auto dealer's shoes, uh -huh. right? He was good at numbers, better at numbers probably than other econ economists. I mean, really good at yeah. numbers. Um, part of the founding of the National Bureau of Economic right, Research right. and his strength. A great professor at Columbia, a kind man. Um, Tom, a business cycle theorist par excellence. Uh, kind man from time to time. Tom Sowell notes that Tom, the, the great conservative and markets writer Thomas Sowell, who is black, notes that he never would have got into University of Chicago for graduate school um, had Arthur Burns not written him a recommendation. Uh, so Arthur took care of his children, and some of them were very brilliant. Milton Friedman, Tom Sowell, whoever, you know, a great, great mentor. So, and uh, the thing that I noticed, Jim, which I didn't know about before, is that in the 50s, Burns actually wrote a book and gave a series of lectures called Prosperity Without Inflation. Yeah. Well, um, that went against um, general arguments at the time, but it also showed how much he cared about keeping inflation low yeah, because others would say prosperity uh, requires some inflation. And he dared to diss the establishment um, before he became it and say, I will figure out a way to get prosperity without inflation. Yeah, there's an economist at Harvard called Schlichter, who was the uh, sponsor of an idea called Creeping in 
inflation. You had to have enough of it to get things moving, not not burns. Uh, so he had right. So he had uh, by the end he had a, neither prosperity nor stable money. So he really hurt himself. And and the sort of human story is that Burns was friendly with Richard Nixon. Nixon being Nixon liked Burns because Burns gave Nixon a good explanation for why Nixon lost in 1960. What, what one always seeks, he said, "You didn't lose because of you. You lost because because <laughs> the interest rate, Hillary, because the interest rate was too high. Yeah, yeah. It's not your fault." It's William McChesney Martin's fault, or it's um, President Eisenhower's fault for not pressuring the Fed enough. That very, and this is what one craves. Let's face it: an explanation for one's failures that when uh, that is are not, uh, is not uh, suggests they are these failures are not one's fault. I mean, we're all human. Oh, it was the weather. So, so Nixon had a soft spot in his heart for Burns. Burns was brilliant at a dinner party in a meeting, um, and he was forceful. And he was, by the way, senior to Nixon, a little older, and so. Nixon invited him in to the cabinet first, sort of as a senior advisor um, into into Nixon's entourage and with the promise he would become Fed chairman and Nixon duly made Arthur Fed chairman. So Arthur thought Nixon owed him and would do what he said. The president owes me. We are, and I think you've reviewed the memoirs of Burns at some point that were recently published, I mean, past 10 years, where Burns writes kind of delusionally, I'm his best friend, suggesting he's also mine. Nixon didn't really have any friends. Right, uh, maybe BB Rebozo, but 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 I'm his best friend, so so he'll do what I want. Yeah, right. Nixon will, and and then Burns finds himself sort of in the dilemma of every Fed chairman, which is he's receiving Trump-like Johnsonian pressure from the chief executive for lower rates. Correct. Well, this is this is something that is uh, that makes this book, which is well worth reading as history, makes it even more worth reading as a, a provocation to compare and contrast to. Uh, to putting our own present day into the perspective of uh, recent financial history. So um, imagine this, ladies and gentlemen. Imagine a president leaning on a Fed chair to reduce the rate of interest below the measured rate of inflation. That's shocking. That could scarcely happen until Donald Trump. And, and imagine furthermore, imagine a president being preoccupied with the stock market and telling the Fed chairman that he had to accommodate policies such that the stock market could rally past a certain psychologically important number into a national election year. Well, it happened. And not not necessarily only this time. Not only this time, no. And I, uh, there's some pressure in the Reagan period too, notwithstanding the myth, yeah. right? So, which you have written about, but but yes. Yeah, so so Nixon, um, the, Arthur is safely ensconced on his throne at the Fed. Nixon, Nixon, very ambivalent, complex man, isn't happy with Arthur's interest rates or what his management of a sort of new thing, money supply. Um, and they're talking about money supply, and Milton Friedman is sniping from the outside. Right, right. Thank you, Milton Arthur is thinking, right? I created you. <laughs> and now you're saying I'm managing money supply wrong. I'm being too loose. Um, and uh, Arthur is there and Nixon is scared. So he sends his little men, you know, the boys in the basement, yeah, right. that would be Haldeman and Ehrlichman, yeah. over to chastise the right. eminent Fed chairman. Right. Okay. So, so the inflation problem does not go away. Uh, it has it has uh, moments of remission to be sure, but it's persistent. And uh, so what to do? Well, Arthur Burns, the great capitalist philosopher, the pipe smoking uh, thinker of uh, the Fed. Ah, yes, we will implement an incomes policy, which is a euphemism for wage price controls. So isn't this the great apostasy in this story that Arthur Burns, Burns, is the 
is the champion of this most uncapitalistic initiative. Yes, if Burns were here, he'd say, I grew up and I was born in a certain part of Austria that's beleaguered uh -huh. and uh -huh. and I know what East Europe, what happened yeah. in East Europe and, uh -huh. and, and, and yes, and students of Burns to this day debate how much Burns was for this. Newer documents have revealed, yes, indeed, he was pushing an incomes policy, which um, is against capitalism and Burns' own uh, public statements of at other points. Um, and so why did he do it? The same reason anyone does anything. Burns didn't want to embarrass himself and his guild uh, by lowering interest rates. So he said, let someone else try to control uh, inflation. And uh, I'm not sure it'll work. He did probably, I don't know what he believed, but anyway, he hadn't been for that kind of policy for wage and price right. control. And suddenly he's backing it because it would be then on Congress. And by the time Congress failed and the president, well, the election would be over. Right. He understood that maybe for a minute before the boiling kettle explodes, you can create the appearance of inflation control through wage and price control. Right. So this this takes us uh, almost up into uh, up till um, 9 p.m. Eastern time, Eastern Daylight Savings Time, August Sunday, August 15th, 1971. Now, what happened on the preceding Saturday, the 15th, was a great powwow at Camp David. What happened there? Well, Nixon, you know, presidents shift favorites. They're like high school girls. They play them off each other, right? And this is great agony. So Burns was out because his interest rates weren't low enough. And President Nixon was infatuated. He had a real crush on John Connolly. Big John. Be, um, who was like, uh, sort of like Lyndon Johnson, only bigger and br more brutal. Even Johnson said that. And Connolly was 100% political, didn't care about this money stuff, uh, said amusing things. The the dollar is our currency and your problem, Europe. Uh, and decided he just wanted to goose the hell or heck, whatever word you use, out of the economy to get the Nixon reelected. Nixon thought that was great. Connolly being Treasury Secretary by this point. Kind of unorthodox move, Democrat in a Republican right. Treasury. And Nixon thought this was fine because he had this uh, delusion himself of a fusion ticket. Right. Democrat Vice President John Connolly haloed. Okay, so they're at Camp David. And, and so he gave, yeah, he gave, he did Connolly's plan. Right. What did they decide to do? They decided to do a, a bunch of redundant measures. So they're going to be tariff. Well, that would mean that might change the term, that might change the terms of trade to be, help the dollar. Um, Okay. Then in addition, they were going to close the gold window, which would lead to a revaluation of foreign currencies, therefore helping us against foreign competition in a second way. And then we were going to have some tax advantages in the United States that would make it easier and cheaper to sell industrial goods. So there were at least three efforts to help us and hurt the rest of the world. Well, let's not slide too fast by the uh, closing the gold oh, window. Oh, I didn't. Uh, and, and then on top of that was closing the gold, right, that, that closing the gold window um, forced uh, the strengthening of foreign currencies, but it also told the rest of the world, we don't care about you because we've been telling you, you have to go along with this gold exchange system all, all your life, all summer long. And if you don't, you're in deep trouble. And it was not just closing the gold window, deciding to it this weekend, but the precipitous fashion, the absence of any consultation with the esteemed central bankers of Japan and Germany, and the very um, random way that it was done. But Connolly thought, well, it will shock the hell out of the rest of the world and make us look great, awesome, and powerful. Yeah. Sound familiar? Well, it, it amounted, did it not, to a devaluation of the dollar? And in fact, it, it amounted to a default. Yes. Uh, the United States uh, set 
up as the uh, reliable debtor to the world. We owed people money, but we were, were willing to uh, always to exchange these dollar bills for something fixed, permanent, and inviolable. And all of a sudden, uh, in a rather high-handed way, as you were saying, uh, we changed our minds and uh, John Connolly uh, put the imperial icing on that cake with his somewhat undiplomatic language. So, uh, I mean, how do, you, how do you, having done this superb project, this book, how do you think perhaps a little differently about the present day? Let me, well, let me... one can see that when President Trump is bold, he's not the first. And there's some wonderful pictures in here of William McChesney Martin kind of shrinking as Johnson leans over him, uh, President Johnson. So that's the Fed chairman get bullied by presidents. It's just a fact of American well, life. We... And, and so that's one thing. Uh, the other is that uh, the more important thing, I think, is when someone tells you he's very clever and has a business school degree and great corporate experience and offers a plan of 35 points, one should be very suspicious because this is a kind of, this book's a kind of domestic best and the brightest. Super clever guys uh, working and writing terrible social domestic plans. So today in our kind of um, culture of adoration of consultants, this book is a, a cautionary note. No, it's not a great idea to go to Bain straight out of college, no matter what scores you have. Uh, you know, it's not a crown consultants. Um, but the third is that the the socialist impulse, um, the most important lesson of the book is these were very loving people, uh, Sergeant Shriver, um, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, some of the other under characters, not the presidents, who really wanted to do something good. And they loved the people they were trying to help with their lovable programs. And yet the people who were loved were hurt by the ones who loved them. So that teaches us that love is not enough. <laughs> and the, the book that opens up with uh, Bonanza and the Cartwrights ends uh, uh, in a coda, not with beyond August 15, 1971, with the uh, uh, intended demolition and the successful intended demolition of, the, of a housing project, a notorious project called Pruitt Igo. And Abbott, you, you, you begin this uh, with letting the readers know where you stand. And you said the trouble with the 60s leftists was not that they were traitors, few were. The trouble was that they were wrong. Now, the 60s uh, radicals of you know, if, uh, some of them have met their maker and some of them are, I guess, a little bit mellower. Uh, but uh, do you see our, a resurgence of the impulse? Oh, I need not see. We are confronted with, we plural, uh, you know, uh, with a resurgence at universities. One of the, the things, though, I picked up, Jim, which I, I imagined that the student movement of the 1960s was created itself out of its own integrity. Young people woke up at age 19 and said, this is wrong. And there is some of that to it. But what I discovered, um, one of the groups I followed is, of course, Students for a Democratic Society, which sounded nice. And uh, basically, those young people did more or less good things to help blacks get the franchise in the South and then went crazily wrong into nihilism and um, violence. So this SDS was founded more or less, um, you know, was pulled together at a meeting in Port Huron, Michigan. And I thought, and I had always thought, because I'm from Illinois and you've spent time in Indiana, that, well, these, these young people came there together and they did all this. And what I realized in the research was that they were staged by the labor unions, that the place that the famous Port Huron statement was generated at was a union retreat. UAW, right? UAW retreat, uh, UAW, AFL-CIO. But it, it was called Four Freedoms. It was created by unions. They were funded by unions, by the UAW. And you have to imagine Walter Ruther, who is a wonderful character in the book, the head of the UAW, an intensely likable 
what he was thinking in 1960. Well, tens of millions of Americans are going to go to college now. I've been a blue collar leader, but I want to be a white collar leader too, because I want two million members of the UAW, not just one. So I want to be nice to these college kids. Walter Ruther was not a communist in the sense he reported to Moscow. He was an American social democrat. And he said, I'm going to be nice to them and I'm going to put them on a long leash. They'll, they'll commit infelicities. They'll commit mischief, but they'll grow up and come around and lead the UAW and our union will be twice as mighty as it is now. And instead of being thankful to old Walter, who was a real worker, had helped founded the UAW, had seen communism firsthand in Russia and didn't like it, what they did was they betrayed him because they went so far left that they threw the election of 1968 to Richard Nixon ingrates. And there's a wonderful scene. I can't remember if it's in the book, but Walter Ruther went to a Passover uh, of uh, Mr. Bluestone and some other union leaders that he always went to in the Detroit area. And all the children of these people were there who are now young activists, many of whom he had given jobs or caused uh, to receive jobs. And they started to berate him about the Vietnam War, which he supported because he supported Johnson because he wanted all the other things. And he looked at these young people berating him about fighting for unions he said, are you talking to me? <laughs> Almost are you but much with much more authority than um, taxi driver. Are you talking to me? I who gave you this entire world on a platter, blessed your movement, funded it with my assistant Millie here. He could not believe the extent of the betrayal of the young left. So but the lesson for today is they did not create themselves. They were created by uh, by fools such as Walter Ruther, who rude the day he had ever supported these people and um, sadly and also dramatically uh, crashed in an early Learjet in the middle, heading towards one of his little utopias, a worker retreat he was building. But it, I came to like him a lot. He was deeply wrong. And I guess today the analogy would be universities that support students in the most extreme positions out of a kind of disingenuous um, under a kind of disingenuous free speech cover and have no idea what they're creating and how much it will hurt them and their own pensions in TIA craft. Yeah. Well, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, there, there are, as you can see, myriad reasons uh, to read Amity's new superb book, Great Society, A New History. And I'm going to leave you with a final, another, well, yeah, the final reason that I have time to, uh, to convey. And that is, if you read this book, you will see how it came to be that Daniel Patrick Moynihan's house in Cambridge, Massachusetts, came under attack by these young ingrate lefties and was defended, yes, by six divinity students of the Harvard Divinity School. Amity Slays, thank you for being with us today. It was just about fabulous. Thank you. Thank you.